we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Club podcast. It is episode 90. It's the 5th of April, 2017. With me, the original and the best, the Velvet Glove himself. (laughs) (laughs) G'day, Trevor. How are you? Good, Scott. Good to have you back. So, um, yeah, I'm back. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we didn't talk about it, but uh, did you manage to listen to the venerable Alex and Buddhism? I did listen to Alex. Yeah, and that was really surprising that you um, that you, you gave a, a religious person a, such a such a, 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 a what's the word I'm looking for a soapbox to stand on. But no, he was really interesting. Um, mm. Oh, I think it's uh, it, it's given me a new appreciation for Buddhism. Mm. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think he uh, he was very persuasive, and you know, if you're going to take up a religion, then Buddhism's at the top of the list at the moment. Well, that's it. If you do need to take up a religion, I think Buddhism is probably it. Yeah. Yes. So um, one of our followers said something along the lines of, um, you know, good interview, enjoyed it, etc. Um, really, you know, it all made a lot of sense. What a what a shame that. Victory was no. The defeat was snatched from the jaws of victory. Was his uh, <laughs> when it came to the um, reincarnation sort of aspects and the supernatural. But it was. It's one of those things with Buddhism that um, it's quite distinct, isn't it? From the you could live all the Buddhist principles and and really the reincarnation bit is just an afterthought and quite separate. And you could be quite divorced from that belief and continue with the others. Whereas in the Abrahamic faiths, you're really spending a lot of time worshipping God, which um, is part and parcel of the whole thing. So if you're wrong on that score, you've really wasted a lot of time. So I think the Buddhists are... Well, yeah. Go on. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, the, the Buddhists, you can um, you can just uh, ignore the, uh, the supernatural stuff. Mm. And you can go off there and you can say, well, I'm a Buddhist and that sort of stuff. Mm. You don't have to. You don't have to subscribe to the supernatural thing, mm. but the rest of it, you know, being a vegetarian and all that sort of stuff, it all makes perfect sense. Mm. So, no, Alex, mm. uh, very interesting character, and um, we'll have him on again because he's somewhat of an expert on on Christianity, which will be handy for us. So, we'll, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Ah, mm. Scott, what an eventful week in terms of secularism and atheism uh, in Australia with um, dear listener if you're you know if you're catching up on this episode sometime down the track uh, we experienced this week the Ayan Hersey Alley fiasco where she was due to come to Australia for a series of talks organized by Think Inc and at the last minute she has cancelled citing a number of reasons including security concerns so scott you had tickets what's going to happen there i had tickets i haven't had had an email from thinking yet but i will um get in contact with them about getting refunds Mm. um it is uh, it is somewhat annoying uh i haven't seen anything that um 
I mean, the security concerns and that sort of stuff, that's probably very separate and it's probably uh, kept hidden from us. Mm. But it does, it does make me worry as to what the security concerns were. I mean, um, do you have a... Have we got a situation that someone's threatened to put a cap into her? If that's the case, it's, then it's threatened, the cops should be... Has threatened to what? Has threatened... Has put a cap in a shooter. Oh, a cap, you know. right. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I haven't been watching you know, enough has, gangland, you know, um, movies <laughs> or something. No, you know, pop a cap in you. Yeah, you okay. get shot. Um, you know, if, if someone has threatened a shooter, the cops should be all over that and they ought to shut that down mm. as quick as they possibly can and throw the guy in the clink if that was the case. Mm. I don't know what threats have been made or anything like that. I mean, she lives under 24-hour bodyguards and that sort of stuff right now. It does make me wonder, um, was she not allowed to bring the bodyguards with her? You know, that sort of thing. Um, It's it's a concern that she feels unsafe to come to Australia. Mm -hmm. And I did notice that... uh, the images of last time she was in the country, there was protests and that sort of stuff outside of where she was speaking. And, you know, they were chanting death to Ayan Hirsi Ali, go to hell, Ayan Hirsi Ali, that sort of thing. But there was no actual, no one breached the lines and got too close to her or anything like that. But it did make me wonder what was um, behind it and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, I, I, I've no doubt that she's got... Um, that she's got wind of something and decided to call it quits it, on coming to it, Australia. It would have been nice if she was a bit more specific about the reason. So, for example, had they got wind of some specific um, uh, you know, action, a threat um, that they'd heard about through internet chatter or, you know, like, you know, why not say so? Um, or what? What are these other reasons? It would be good, you know. When you've cancelled something, I think to me it sounds like a little bit better explanation is warranted, and hopefully one will come in the next little while. But it's quite a vague answer. It would have been nice to know exactly, but um, it, it would have been nice to know exactly. Yeah, I think you're right there. But um, yeah, I. I can understand why she's been vague, um, but you know it's mm. it doesn't um, it 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 still leaves a bit of taste in my mouth when you hear the um, when you hear the the various uh, talks and that sort of stuff on radio about her. Mm, well, and just just to give I'll give yeah. the uh, the dear listener a little background. So, okay, she's not coming. She cited security concerns. Um, be that as it may. The critical part of the whole Ayan Hersey Ali visit for April 2017 to Australia is the is the unashamed attack from from the uh, from female Muslims. Basically, let's put it straight. Um, there's been three different um, things happen in relation to Ayan Hersey Ali. There's been a petition which was signed by a number of female Muslim activists. And um, we'll talk about that. There was a viral video, again, where it was about four or five female Muslim activists were scathing in their personal attack on Hersey Ali. 
And there was an interview on RN Drive, which we'll also talk about, where again a female Muslim activist um, said various things. So this was a case of of uh, female Muslim apologists rising up and attacking Ayan Hirsi Ali at a very personal level, very mercilessly, and and in throughout this whole thing they are accusing her of hate of hate speech but they themselves conduct the most vitriolic hate speech that we've heard in Australia in a long long time so so we'll start with the first one being the petition and uh, this was organized by Hannah Asafiri and she is a lady who currently runs a Moroccan soup bar and that's famous, um, Scott, because they hold um, at different times functions where you can speed date a Muslim. So you can sit mm. down at a table, have a quick speed date with a Muslim, ask questions. And um, she has been awarded the uh, she's been awarded on the Victorian Honor Roll for Women in 2017. So she's the one behind the petition, which says we the undersigned and. The petition is signed by... This is a bit hard. It's supposedly by a couple of hundred Muslim female activists. And then it's online for other people to sign. And at last count had less than 500 signatures. So didn't well, get a lot of signatures. At it right now. Mm. I'm just looking at it right now. It's got 435 supporters. So, yep. you know, I mean, that's a... Uh, very small number. As far as I'm concerned, that's a very small number. And, yeah. and, and the comment section is just scathing of the petition itself. And people actually signed the petition so that they could then comment and complain about the petition. So so the 435 <laughs> signatures doesn't mean a lot. But anyway, the content of it is, we the undersigned, blah, blah, blah. Express our disappointment that Ayan Hersey Ali is being brought to Australia by Think Inc. Uh, goes on, we are united in our condemnation of Hersey Ali's discourse, which is grounded in hate-mongering and bigotry. Just... Yeah, there's no there's no <laughs> yeah, hate mongering on. by Ayan Hersey Ali. She just speaks facts and puts them up there. And if you're pro Islam, you won't like it because she's against exactly. Islam. But it's not yeah. hate mongering against Muslims. It is it's aimed at the ideology of Islam. Uh, uh, Scott goes on. We utterly reject any Islamic basis for the violence that has occurred to Ayan Hirsi Ali in her life and the violence perpetrated to women all over the world who have fallen victim to culturally influenced misogynistic abuse. This, dear listener, is a key idea that we've got to get a grip of, that Islamic apologists... One of the first things they turn to now is, oh, well, that thing that you're complaining about, that's not Islamic, that is culture of certain countries. Mm. Um, but the gall of these women, feminists, they call themselves, mm. to say, we utterly reject any Islamic basis for the violence that has occurred to Ayan Hirsi Ali in her life. How dare they pretend to know all of the violence inflicted on that woman in the first place 
to then comment that they can categorically say that there is no Islamic basis to any of it. The, the gall of these people to make such a broad-based claim, it's astounding, Scott. Well, you know, it goes on further here. Violence is inherent in Islam. It is, it's a destructive nihilistic cult of death. It legitimises murder. This is just one example of vitriol frequently espoused by this individual you know, against a backdrop of increasing global Islamophobia, Hirsi Ali's divisive rhetoric simply serves to increase hostility and hatred towards Muslims. You know, uh, she has moderated her stance over a number of years. Um, I first came across her years ago, and I remember at the time sort of wincing at some of the stuff she had said. Mm -hmm. But if you look at everything that she's been saying lately... She is a hell of a lot calmer than what she was look, back then. Look, look, even if she was a, a, a Gert Wilders or, a, you know, a right-wing nutter, you mm. couldn't, as these women have said, reject any Islamic basis for the violence she has occurred, that has occurred to her in her life. Like, you just can't say yeah. that. It's no. ludicrous. Even if she was coming out with the outlandish statements, which she's not, but... Uh, mm. The gall of these people to make sweeping statements. Uh, sorry, Scott. It goes on further. This is all written down in this petition. Mm. Um, to conflate um, hate speech with free speech undermines the efforts we have made to maintain respect and dignity in an environment of such hostility. Again, they're decrying hate speech but they, and in the video that we'll talk about later, they are guilty of some of the worst hate speech. And this is against a person who is known to be uh, having to have security guards because of threats made against her. Uh, she made a film, the director was killed, and her name was put forward as the next one to be killed. They know all mm. this, and they're... They're spewing their hatred and their vitriol against a person who they know is a potential target. They know that there are radical Islamists out there, and this is just feeding reasons for the Islamists to get off the couch and find Hersi Ali and, and Kappa, as you would say, Scott. Well, I'll put a cap in yeah. it. Like, as, yeah. as a woman, you are... You're Viewing and directing hatred at Hersey Ali, who you know is in a dangerous position, and you are inciting. Look, it'd be it'd be more than arguable that these women are are, if they think about it, they're inciting violence against Hersey Ali. That they'd say, "Oh, we de we de we deplore any violence committed against her," but when you insult her and make her out to be the complete devil. In an environment where you know there's people out there with half a mind to kill her, you're stirring up a pot of of hatred. The chances of injury coming to her are greater, after all that, than they were beforehand. It shows no no feminist sympathy for another woman in the least. It's it's very mean. It is very mean, and it is um it really is um, 
Oh, you know, I'm lost for words, I think, because it is, you know, like when we get onto the video, you, mm. you can, you know, the, I, I encourage the listeners to read everything that's that's on the, um, the, that's linked here, because it is very powerful. And it is um, quite disturbing yeah. from some of these women, because they are educated and that sort of stuff, and they did... They did not hold back, did they? No, they did not. And if if that wasn't bad enough, let's now turn to the video. So this is a video that has since gone viral with uh, at least 100,000 views um, Mm. um, from a website, Persons of Interest, a news and media page dedicated to conversations about social justice. So they published the video titled Aeon Hersey Alley, you don't speak for us. It goes for 2 minutes 49 seconds, and I'm going to play that for you now, dear listener. Ayan Hirsi Ali, you do not speak for us. You do not speak for us. You don't speak for us. You are not our ally. You're not interested in our lives or our freedom. You've described Muslim women as being irrational. Docile? Having no minds of our own. You've called us slaves. How can you claim to stand for our liberation? When you simply repeat the language of our oppressors. This is not the language of solidarity or understanding or freedom. This is the language of patriarchy and misogyny. This is the language of white supremacy. This is the language used to justify wars, invasion and genocide. You're not here to help us or stand with us. You're here to profit from an industry that exists to dehumanise us. An industry built on selling hatred, misinformation and stereotypes. It's a lucrative career, appearing on panels, TV shows, big budget events, where people have to pay big money to hear you speak. You know what your audience wants and you give it to them. Despite globally recognised institutions describing you as an extremist. Despite your claims being debunked over and over again by academics and experts all around the world. Despite your closest associates being white nationalists and far-right politicians. It seems that people never get tired of touring you. To repeat the same rhetoric over and over again. Because there is nothing quite as satisfying to a coloniser than a subject who becomes the salesperson for their ideology. We're not here to say that Muslims are perfect. No one is. But your narrative doesn't support our struggles. It erases them. Like all women, we resist patriarchy and misogyny every day. Like our mothers and grandmothers before us, we strive for dignity and equality. Within our cultures and outside of them. But you don't care. Your livelihood depends on pretending our histories don't exist. That we're simply faceless, nameless victims. Too stupid to escape our savage traditions. You collapse our plurality into a single convenient stereotype. This is not intellectual, it's lazy. This hatred you feed puts us in danger every day. It encourages fear, persecution and violence. This is not brave. This is not progressive. This is propaganda. Bravery is not selling lies. Bravery is living through the relentless hostility discrimination and pressure of a world that fears us. A world that you helped to create. So as you can uh, you can see, dear listener, um, they didn't hold back, did they? <laughs> that's, 
No, they didn't hold back. And, you know, it's... um, And they weren't all veiled women either. They were, you know, there was... A number of them were veiled, but a, a couple of them weren't. Mm. And they didn't hold back at all. They really let... They really went to town on it, didn't they? Mm. You know. So they start off with, you don't speak for us. Well, she never claims to speak for all Muslims. But, but, but these women claim to speak for all Muslims. Like, that's... Yeah. The whole infuriating part of this whole segment, Scott, is that the very things they accuse her of, she is innocent, yet they are guilty of. So, saying you don't speak for us, well, she's not claiming to. She's just, um, uh, you know, putting forward an argument against an ideology. They're the ones claiming to speak on behalf of Muslim women. Um, exactly. And that that is the thing that I found particularly galling about it all, was each of them basically we're saying, well, you know, you don't have the right to talk about us, but we do, mm, you know. Mm. It's really sickening. A few key points from that. The, the bit where saying that she's just in it for the money, like a, lo- a really low blow. Like yeah. You're just in that it for the money. That was particularly offensive, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Saying yeah. that your claims, this is Ali, Hersey Ali's claims have been debunked, yet you continue to do this. Your associates are all far-right nationalists. Um, yeah, now that is the part that I found really galling because I didn't think she was from a far right party. I mean, in the Netherlands, I think she was she was representing the Liberal Party, wasn't she? Well, you know, by her associates, you know, um, Majid Nawaz and Sam Harris and all that are, you know, supposed according to this group would be far right nationalists. You know, well, I suppose they yeah. say. I think they said in there that um, you know you've been condemned by international groups, and and that would have been groups like the Southern Poverty Law Centre, like, who came out with that outrageous um, claim that... Uh, yeah, well, they, they, that she was a, a anti-Muslim bigot. Yes, yeah. an extremist, and so was uh, Majid Nawaz. So, you know, that's part of the danger of a group like Southern Poverty Law Centre coming out with that, is that groups like this can use that against people like her. Um, mm. Also, they said that you're a... a a colonist's salesperson, you know, like just come out and call her an Uncle Tom. Like, just put it in plain exactly. language. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. um, and your narrative doesn't support us. The hatred you feed puts us in danger every day. That that's a quote from there. They're saying to her, "This hatred you feed puts us in danger every day." Well, Hersey Alley is be far more legitimate for her to turn around and say to them, no, 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 the hatred you're feeding puts me in danger every day. Exactly. Oh. Yeah. Um, so that that video is linked in the show notes, dear listener, if you need to listen to that again. But that... Um, that's that one. And then uh, then we've also got, I've alerted to a, uh, an interview on the Radio National Drive program where one of the women on that video, and I think she was one of the signers of the petition, Tasneem Chopra, who I'm sure has appeared on Q&A at least once and possibly more because her face looks very familiar to me. And... Um, she uh, is being interviewed, and Meredith Duig uh, of The Rationalists is with her as well. And well, before we talk about it, I better play that one as well. So um, sit back and, and listen to this interview. 
But just going back to, to the earlier point there just made, it is interesting, though, that when, you know, whether it be the Rational Society or other other think tanks and, and, and even right-wing entities, when they want to talk about freedom of expression and express their views, and if they argue for that, we call it free speech, when people of colour in this country who are all from a minority community to talk about freedom of speech or they're being persecuted and wanting to have a right to have a platform, we call it a security concern because oh. suddenly they're... No, I'm sorry, but suddenly, no, they're wanting to have that voice heard becomes untenable. And I think, again, when you went back to pointing out the security threat, the organisation that they have been touted as having the person responsible and the organisation that was listed as the offending organisation to the knowledge of peak Islamic bodies in this country, does not exist. What would that tell you? Meredith, you heard the critique there that people of colour, according to Tasneem, don't don't have the same platform for free speech. Do you accept that? Uh, well, Ayan Hirsi Ali herself is of colour. And in fact, the young entrepreneurs, Think Inc., who have brought Ayan Hirsi Ali out uh, here to Australia, um, both of them under the age of 30. Uh, one is from Sri Lanka and the other one has a Middle Eastern background. So I just don't accept that uh, argument at all. Tasneem, that is true that obviously uh, she's from, she, she's an she's a African woman. She's, she's not a she's white woman. She's the most celebrated brand ambassador for Islamophobia, one of the most celebrated in the world. But why, does her her platform... colour, why is her colour not relevant? Why is, uh, it's, does it's, that it's get erased? In this context, it's entirely relevant because she's she's what's commonly called as you know the favourite Muslim of the right wing is the ex-Muslim, and she fits those categories. She has grown up from a Muslim background. She's had a lived experience that was traumatic, and she has used that experience now to broadly brush the entire faith to speak so on behalf so of some half brown, a million of women. Some brown speakers are okay, but others are not. No, no one speaker can generalise for the experience of an entire community, and that is what she does. But doesn't no, she, she doesn't. talk? She doesn't. No, she claims that she does. She calls Muslim women no, she in entirety docile, robots who cannot think for themselves. She, she makes those qualifying comments. A very insightful analysis of Islam, which is not simplistic. It's actually quite complex. And it's the sort of argument that we need to consider. Tasneem, I'll give you the final word because we're fast running out of time. She's obviously cancelled her trip now, which is why we're covering the story. Do you think she has the right to come back to Australia? Would you like to see her come back to Australia to have the right to, to share some of her views? We do have free speech and we do have the freedom and the and we should have the opportunity to, to engage in those discussions. We also have an 18C regulation that has been revisited recently for the specific reason that we know that the line that when it's crossed has a cost to it. And we know that when racial slurs and vilification go unchecked, we have people who are hurt. We have people who are threatened and killed in this country. We've seen it. And we've seen a causal link time after time in every country where people have made incitements to violence, either wittingly or unwittingly, which have provoked their supporters to act out aggressively. We have seen it. And the Muslim community's race of Islamophobia, hate crimes, has gone up 200% in the last 12 months. In Brexit, in after, so you after don't Brexit think she should UK, come to Australia? I think if she's going to come, she needs to agree to wanting to have a conversation with, with, a, with a broader entity than, than her traditional one. One of the things I found galling about that interview was how um, uh, whoever it was... Tasneem Chopra? No. 
Oh. Yeah, yeah. How she was given the final word. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, so she was given the final word, so she was able to slap her Siali down mm. and then move on. Yeah. Anyway. Um. Key yeah. key things from that one. Um. She's Tasneem was really pissed that Hersey Alley would not agree to meet and talk with her group. <laughs> the the call yeah, of the I, yeah. <clears throat> the call they of have these just people. released a video that has put her down. Yes, that's told her that she has put them in a in a uh, a negative situation for their own safety. Mm. Has told her that she's nothing but a Uncle Tom. Mm. And, you know, and they want to sit down and break bread with her? Yes. And... Uh, you know, that is maddening. M- maddening. And and at the end, uh, said something, you know, when asked by the interviewer, you know, should... Sh- asked by the interviewer, should Hersey Alley be allowed back? I mean, what sort of question is that? But her response was, well, only if she agrees to to uh, to speak to a wider audience um, meaning her group without actually saying that but but saying that Ian Hersey Alley just can't come and speak to whoever she wants to I mean anybody could have bought a ticket to one of the events and exactly and that is the thing that really that was the part that really ticked me off was that they could have bought their tickets mm. they could have gone in there they could have shut up and listened to her and then asked questions exactly q and a session you know? yeah exactly mm. so and there would have been nothing Hersey Ali could have done about it because they could have just turned up and that would have been the end of it you know mm. so Meredith did a great job I thought when um, when Tasneem uh, complained that brown people don't have a voice and um Meredith said, well, Hersey Alley is brown. And yeah. the two entrepreneurs behind Think Inc. who organise these events, they're also brown and under 30. So, you know, what's your problem? And and Tasneem is kind of having to say, well, she's not a real true brown person because she has a white opinion. Like it just sort of, it just, it it kind of stumped her, didn't it? It was, it was the one it part did, of yeah. the thing where she really... Uh, you know, most obviously sounded um, even more ridiculous because um, because she didn't know how to counter. That is the beauty of somebody like Hersey Alley and Majid Nawaz is is they can counteract that statement. Well, you know, you're just a white privileged person. What would you know? Like all I can revert to is, well, you're an Uncle Tom, you're a colonist salesperson, you're a traitor to your culture, this sort of thing. Um, yeah. It, it's a difficult difficult one for them. Um, oh, um, what else did I have from that? So, so there, there, you, there you go, dear listener. I mean, the petition, um, the video and that interview... This is a critical moment in Australian social history where where people have unashamedly got up and just poured scorn on somebody at a personal level, hate and vitriol, in an effort to shut down debate. At, at no point was there any discussion of the merits of what Hersey Alley has to say. At, at no point in this is there a situation where, 
well, she said this and she said that, and that's factually wrong, or those two arguments she put together don't go together. There was none of that. It's It's been an in, entirely based on shutting her down and and not allowing her to speak. And seemingly successful, Scott. It's a real a real turning point in Australian society that somebody where debate has been shut down whether they shut it down or or whether you know some terrorist organization stopped her the the unabashed the unabashed um bashing of Hersey Alley is quite instructive i think um they just didn't hold back it was it's quite instructive so um a couple of things on this uh very much what we've seen is they have been playing the man and not the ball. Very personal abuse and attack of Hersey Alley with no attempt to address factual claims. Key part of all this, no, Scott, key part, all of the players in this have been women. Not a single man has been unleashed because men could not get away with this level of attack on a woman. So we haven't heard any imams, male clerics... This has all been women against a woman, Scott. Very instructive. Mm. Um, and the key tactic is... Oh, I, think the, I think the imams were probably pulling the strings and that sort of stuff behind the scenes. Quite possibly. Um, whispering yeah. in their ear, who knows? But, but yeah. they couldn't get away with attacking a woman the way that these women have got away with, with it. Um, mm. So the yeah, tactic exactly. has been to deplatform Hersey Alley. Uh, your speech is hate speech, so shut up. You don't speak mm. for us, so shut up. You're an Uncle yeah. Tom, so shut up. You're, yeah. you're in it for the money, so shut up. And you're wrong without anything else, so shut up. Um, and the only time she could have a platform to speak of was if they'd go to a private meeting, if Hersey Alley would go to a private meeting with their little group behind closed doors and talk. That was the only platform that they could concede that she could have. Oh, Scott. I mean, she, was, she was due to be on Q&A too, wasn't she? Yes. So that was all cancelled. <coughs> yes. <coughs> yep. Excuse me. Um, I would imagine if she turned up on Q&A that Q&A would have stacked the panel with Muslims and that sort of stuff as well. Who knows? She would have been fine. She could have given the chance to talk. They could have lined up a hundred against her and she could swat them away um, like the hero in a zombie movie, you know, with a baseball bat. Yeah. Like, it, it wouldn't have been a problem. And they know that. It's, it's, it's getting her off that platform was, was the key to the agenda. Now, whether it was their actions that were successful in doing that or... Or some terrorist threat, who knows? But that was the clear tactic. And Scott, like when we first started this podcast, we're talking about religion and we want to get into talk about, you know, the problems of Islam and the extremist elements and the scripture and Islamic countries and their problems and all that nitty gritty. None of that we've got to talk about. It's all been whether you have the right to talk in the first place. It's Mm. It's this. The religious groups, and in particular, um, Islamic apologists, are really using this identity politics um, 
<sighs> tactic to its fullest. Um, and they worked out that, you know, there's some pretty shaky arguments in defence of Islam, so the best thing to do is just shut down debate. That's the exactly. easiest option. So, mm. um, Scott, identity is sacred. Uh, it's derived from culture and religion. Neither culture or identity can be criticised. This is more important than free speech. Reason becomes irrelevant. Feelings are the first priority. Criticism of cultural identity is now the new blasphemy. And um, and the other key thing that we came out of all that was, um, uh, you know, as soon as there's some nasty element that somebody wants to talk about, the apologists will say, well, that's not Islamic, that's actually cultural. And that's something exactly. that anybody in this sphere has to be ready for in an argument and have your have your ducks in a row as to how you're going to answer that statement because it's one that uh, Islamic apologists are going to come with up with all the time. So they'll yeah. Um, so they'll hide, religion hides under the cloak of culture to garner protection under this sort of identity politics um, uh, argument. But then um, Western apologists will disown certain religious practices as being cultural, not religious, when it suits them. So, mm. Scott, a really interesting moment in our social history, I reckon. Hmm. Well, I hope you're wrong, but I fear you're not. Mm. It is... Um it is it is very disturbing that they managed to shut her down. Mm. It is um, because she is well known. She is, um, you know, I've only seen her speak a few times, and she was very powerful. Mm. You know, mm. I regret not having seen her last time she was in Australia, but I remember seeing her on Q and A and thinking, "Geez, she knows her stuff." Mm. You know, um, she's very very potent, very powerful, and it's a real pity they shut her down. Mm. You know. All right, Scott, we'll move on to a few other articles. Um, yes, we'd better get a crack on Yes. Uh, Labor's, um, a Labor politician, Anne Alley, um, she came, well, it was reported in The Australian, subsequently refuted by her. Uh, she, uh, The Australian reported that she said that there was scope to reassess extending Section 18C to include religion. So at the moment, dear listener, uh, uh, insult, offend, um, I can't even remember what the other two are now, Um, on the basis of some... Yes, on the basis of somebody's race um, and a few other categories, but does not include religion. And she is saying, well, she's reported as saying we should extend that to religion. Um... And you can imagine if they did that, can't you? <laughs> I, I can. I mean, that that. Uh, yeah, that that is ridiculous because then you would have a you'd then have a legislative thing to shut I and Hersey Daly down. Hersey Daly, Hersey down with exactly the group that we've just talked about with their petition and their video <laughs> and their interview wouldn't have bothered. Be I just all would... over this like a fat kid on cake. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so anyway, um, so she said that's not the case. But as part of this article, um, 
uh, her remarks came soon after Labor said it would never change Section 18C. Did you know that? That that's apparently Labor policy? They will never change Section 18C? Yeah, it is Labor policy. Right. Hmm. Scott, where do we go to in this country? We've got Labor saying they'll never change Section 18C, and we've got the Liberals coming in with a company tax reduction. That's the most (laughs) obscene tax reduction in the history of the Commonwealth. Who who can you vote for? You can vote for the secular party. There you go, dear listener. That's it. (laughs) As your second option, you know, as your preference, who would you put? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know who I'd put down as my second preference. Last time round, I put down the Labor Party, mm. but um, I'm not convinced they deserve it anymore. Mm. But uh, I wouldn't go green or anything like that, and I wouldn't, and I wouldn't put down uh, Pauline Hanson either. No, you know? no, she may not be yeah, around. Anyway. She may be in jail if she's not careful. Did, did you watch the Four Corners <laughs> report? I did see that, yes. So, so dear listener, a very interesting report on One Nation and and some very strange goings-on with donations allegedly not um, declared properly. We'll see what happens there. But, gee, I would have thought a woman who's already been in jail once, although successfully appealed, for on the issue of political donations would be super careful about the future and doing that stuff and making sure every I is dotted and T's crossed. But according to the Four Corners report, maybe not. No, apparently not, yeah. Mm. Back to Gillian Triggs, Scott. She was reported as saying, quote, There has never been a more important time to stand up for laws which prohibit racial abuse abuse." in the public arena. Sadly, you can say what you like around the kitchen table at home. Does that seem sad to you, Scott, that you can say what you like around the kitchen table? That really, that really, really stuck in my throat when I read that. It was um, really offensive that she would come out there and say that private speech should be stopped. Well, that's the implication, you know, yeah, I, isn't it? That is the impl- that she didn't actually she yeah she didn't actually say it, but she said it in a way that implied that uh, you know you should stop your private speech exactly, which is utterly offensive. It's really really offensive. It's it's Orwellian, isn't it? So the first sentence: there has never been a more important time to stand up for laws which prohibit racial abuse abuse in the public arena. In, in virtually the next breath, sa- sadly, you can say what you like around the kitchen table at home. I mean, okay, people say racist things around the kitchen table. So, what? and that's, you know, and she might want to comment on that. We'll say something like, sadly, people say racist things at home. But, but not, after, not in conjunction with a sentence that says... You know, we've got to stand up for laws which prohibit things. Mm. People get um, people. You know, it's it's the thing is the thing is about Gillian Triggs is she has played right into the hands of um, right wing Tony. Mm. 
you know, where he said that, you you know, it it is true. I mean, like, you know, she is beginning to sound a lot like what he was describing, you know. Yeah, Yeah. he's becoming quite prescient, yes. It is, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) you know. You know, one of the things that comes up with this 18C debate is is people say, why do you want to change 18C? What what racist slur do you want to say? And the answer to that, dear listener, is it's not what racist slur do I want to say, it's what offensive language do you want to send people to jail for? Like, exactly. Pe- people have to recognise the distinction here. When we talk about, you know very nasty speech that nobody wants to hear, there's there's a difference between what you should say and what you should be thrown in jail or prosecuted for. So mm-hmm. people say, oh, you shouldn't say that, you shouldn't say this and you shouldn't say that, you shouldn't say racist things. Well, they're dead right. You shouldn't say those things. But it's another step again to say you should be taken to court and prosecuted and potentially thrown in jail for it. Like Exactly, that, yeah. That's... The difference, it's it's ANC is prosecuting people in a court of law. So while people can say some really distasteful things, um, which we can all say, you shouldn't say that, or you're wrong to say that, or that's a nasty thing, it's an entirely different thing to say, and we the people want to prosecute you for it. Mm-hmm. Ah, Scott... Um, but it's even worse that she's suggesting that, you know, that the, the long arm of the law should extend to you around the kitchen table. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, that is really, really offensive. It is. You know, and I, you know, it, it's, it really makes me wonder what the hell she smokes, you know. Mm. It is incredible. Mm. Anyway. Scott, we've got a new patron. John, thank you for signing up on Patreon, dear listener. Um, we're up to eight. No, seven. Uh, patrons so thank you very much to the seven of you yeah, yeah there's room for more and so uh if you liked <laughs> if you're liking what you're hearing or if you liked you know last week with venerable alex and you want to hear more of that sort of stuff then um go to patreon and and it's it's not about the money it's about um guilt-free listening to the podcast where you can say yep guys good work and here's my little vote of approval so Thank you, John, for that. Um, got another uh, message from a follower, James, who was commenting on our New Zealand river person. And um, yeah. Scott, I think we'll come back to it another time because there's been a few rivers around the world declared as persons. And I think mm. they're starting on glaciers now as well. And India is particularly keen on this. So... Um, so we're going to do something a bit more in-depth about um, about river people and glacier people <laughs> <laughs> down the track. It's like something out of a Tolkien novel, isn't it? Yeah. It is, yeah. Mm. Uh. Now, Scott, uh, 2018, there will be a global atheist convention in Melbourne. On the 9th, 10th and 11th of February. Did you know this? I did know this. Mm. Um, I had heard about it, but I hadn't um, I hadn't done anything about it. Mm. But I'm thinking about buying tickets. Now, do you know who the two... I have to go. Guess who the two guests are that have been highlighted as, as appearing. 
Sir Salman Rushdie mm. and Ayan Hesi Ali. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm a bit wary about, well, will she turn up? Well, you never know. Yeah, you would hope she would, but um, you don't know. But anyway. Will, will the same group of feminists trot out the same vitriol against her and will they have the same to say about Salman Rushdie? That will be interesting. Well, see, this is the thing. You know, that, that is the thing. I mean, like, when I saw both of them here on the same page, I thought to myself, you know, not that I'm, not that I'm defending the fatwa or anything like that. Mm. However, this is a man who's still, he's still got the fatwa over his head, doesn't he? I believe so. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so he's still got this, he's still got the fatwa over his head, which is a death sentence that's been pronounced by the Islamic people of Iran. Mm. And I thought to myself, if he's going to travel down under, surely she can too, you know? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, um, mm. you know, Kenan Malik, who uh, I'm a big fan of, um, and uh, he's wrote an entire book which basically said that the Rushdie affair was the turning point in identity politics and that the publishers stood their ground in relation to him, but then uh, then everyone fell over after that and succumbed to uh, uh, to the out you know the faux outrage or real outrage from uh, Islamic apologists after that. So he says Rushdie was a turning point in this whole debate and uh perhaps Hersey Alley it does make is our turning it, point it here. does yeah it does make me wonder if Rusty was to try and publish them again now whether or not he would get away with it with the satanic verses you can still buy it openly available I know you can you, you can still buy it it's still available and that sort of stuff I've got a copy right um you know it is it's, it's a pretty good book it's all right it's not Flash, but it's okay. Right. I don't think it would have. I don't think it would have got the sales if they hadn't have put the death penalty on him. Well, but, um, well, I, I, don't, I don't know what sales it got. But he's he's a, um, a very very bright man. He wrote a book which won the Booker Prize prior to that, mm. and and the Booker Prize had like you know a an all star game if you like where they chose the Booker of Booker prizes as in the best yeah. Booker ever. And his book won. So it wasn't the Satanic Verses, it was one of his earlier ones. So he's a brilliant writer. um, But I've heard that the Satanic Verses is hard work and um, uh, some people can love it or some people can hate it. It's a tricky one. I didn't love it and I didn't hate it. But it was... I've got to admit, I probably read it because the Iranians put a death penalty on him. Mm. And I thought to myself, I've got to read this book. I've got to read this book. So I forced myself to read it. Right. It was okay. Yeah. Right. But it was okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Sort of a mix of, of historical figures and fiction all melded together in strange ways. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Mm. Right, Scott. Um, we've got a former Guardian journalist. Um in the news, um, British commentator journalist Julia Hartley Brewer. Have you heard of her before? I've never heard of her before, but I'm going to uh, follow her on Twitter. It's <laughs> <laughs> going to be definitely worth following, dear listener. She'll be a favourite because after she will the be a favorite. Uh, after the terror attack in London with that uh, terrible incident with the guy running people down on the bridge. Uh, 
She blasted calls for prayer in the wake of the terror attack. And on her Twitter feed, she said, um, Can everyone stop with this hashtag pray for London nonsense? It's these bloody stupid beliefs that help create this violence in the first place. <laughs> thank, thank you, Julia. You, know, you do have to thank her, don't you? It is. It is. She's hit the nail right on the head. No, you know, it is. No, no, yeah. no prizes for anticipating this, dear listener. But Twitter users subsequently lashed out at Hartley Brewer who is an atheist. However, the former Guardian journalist doubled down on her remarks in a series of tweets, which were, I'm an atheist. The solution isn't prayers. It's down to real people on a real planet, not an imaginary God. A bit later, I'm not stupid and I don't think all religious beliefs are the same, but I know prayers by anyone won't do anything to solve anything. And later, absurd people being absurdly angry with me about this tweet. Save your anger for the terrorists, you fools. <laughs> she's good. Yeah, she's very good. You know, and that was really what um, got me going was, you know, you know, save your anger for the terrorists. Mm. That is absolutely bang on the money. You've got to save your anger for the terrorists. Mm. Yeah. Uh, back in November 2015, Canadian columnist Doug Saunders took to Twitter and criticised those who were calling for prayers for the citizens of Paris in the wake of the Islamic yeah. terrorist attacks there. Uh, he mm. said at the time, Pray for Paris seems a cruel slogan to direct at a country whose very existence is a mass secular revolt against religious authority. Yeah. People don't understand. That's what the French Revolution was about. Uh, well, it was, you know, you know. It, it, I know that uh, most people can name li- Liberty, Egalité, and Fraternity, but they often uh, it's the overthrow uh, of religious authority. It was for a secular. It state. was, yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was, it was, it was definitely the overthrow of the religious authority and that sort of stuff. And it's why the French government can set rules and that type of stuff to say that you cannot wear the hijab, you cannot wear the hijab, you cannot wear large crucifixes and that sort of stuff. Mm. It has been um, very powerfully done. I can hear the 12th man muttering to himself that uh, all of this sort of people saying their prayers, etc., on social media is mere virtue signalling, no doubt. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Dear listener, Not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, Wait, a new podcast. I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Scott, a um, little bit on the cast system. Uh, yeah, this is I didn't. A lengthy I, article. I only just scanned this. Yeah, mm. it is quite lengthy. Um, I only just scanned it, but it is quite disturbing, isn't it? Mm. I find the cast system, Scott, to be particularly deplorable. Um, yeah. The notion that and people are Hindu. born into a caste and therefore have certain rights and and lack certain rights as a result of being born that way is 
is uh, it's terrible. It is terrible. Yeah, this is why people get so angry when you know Australia gets accused of being a racist country, and you go, "Well, hang on a minute." Like in a country like India, with its caste system, that's a, a terrible discriminatory system. Like, give us a break. Like, start looking at some other major issues before you start talking about us. But I, don't, yeah, I digress. Okay. Anyway, in this article, mm. which I've linked to, um, India's outlawed caste system. <clears throat> is alive and well in Australia, dear listener. Uh, there's a fellow here, Banu Adhikari, thought he had dis- escaped discrimination when he came to Australia in 2008. His family was the first of 4,000 Bhutanese political refugees. Uh, dear listener, you're thinking, well, where's Bhutan? Uh, south of Tibet, north of Bangladesh, and a little bit east of Nepal, and you've got Bhutan. So, uh, seems like they had a lot of Nepalese people come in, and they had a lot of Indian people come in to do work at different infrastructure projects. Who then stayed, but he didn't get full citizenship, and he didn't assimilate. And the the Bhutanese government started to sort of uh, cause problems for those Nepalese and Indians who had come in. Hence, why there's a mm. few refugees. Anyway. This guy, Banu Adhikari, he's in Australia. He's got his mother-in-law with him. She's 84. Uh, He promised her a traditional Hindu religious celebration of her seniority. And four Hindu priests um, agreed to perform the ceremony. But a month before the chosen date, all refused to provide religious services. They gave weak excuses, but their real reason was that um, was a reason to do with caste. And it wasn't because Banu Adhikari or his mother-in-law were of a low caste. It was because they associated with people of a low caste and had allowed those people into their home. And so these priests would not perform the ceremony because of a contaminated home which had low caste people put in it. And you could fix that with another ceremony to cleanse the house. And this guy just refused out of principle. Good on him. Yeah, good on him for sure. You know, mm. it is, um, that's really offensive, isn't it? That they refuse because of the people you had in your home. You know? Despicable. Anyway, this guy yeah, has, uh, has lodged the first legal complaint of discrimination on the basis of caste in the Equal Opportunity Commission of South Australia. So... We'll see how that goes, and the um, the article goes on to talk about um, uh, another guy, a Bhutanese Australian law graduate, Avishek Gazmia, who organised a video, and in the video was a number of people giving their account of, in fact, thirty victims claiming they were discriminated against in Australia on the basis of their caste. So um, so he's done some good work. Um, apparently this will become more of an issue, Scott, because while originally only the wealthy came to Australia and they were all high caste and therefore there wasn't a real problem, uh, people arriving on student visas and many of the immigrants from Fiji are of a lower caste. So this issue of caste conflict is going to get uh, even bigger. 
and they can work out somebody's cast, um, the uh, their um, their surname can give away their cast. So, oh, can it? Hmm. So there's certain surnames that are typical of certain casts. So what people are doing is actually changing their surname to sort of throw people off the track so that they can't um, work out what cast they came from. These are the links that people are going to. And, um, and Scott, that's the main part from that article, I think. Um, the cast system, unfortunately, alive and well in certainly many parts of the Hindu community in Australia. Mm. And it really is quite depressing, isn't it? Because mm. you'd think that if you know, you'd think that if you're leaving your country, you're going to leave behind all the garbage that goes with it. Yeah, you know, you'd bring the good stuff, but leave the garbage behind. But no, they don't. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think what's also happening with the caste system is the ones who are a higher caste traditionally had jobs that meant they were relatively wealthy, but because of the changing world, they're not so wealthy anymore. And uh, so one of the sort of few levers of power is uh, to use the caste system. So um, the sort of once were wealthy, um, now they've just got the title rather than the money. So they are mm. exercising some power using the title. And mm. apparently mothers-in-law are big on enforcing it because they've been victimised their whole life when they married the married their husband you know the in-laws you know gave them a hard time and it's it's when they finally become a mother-in-law that they get the chance to wield some power and they unfortunately inflict on the on the daughters-in-law what they uh, suffered themselves so a mm. bit of a continuing cycle there um yeah it is mm. uh, article in the city morning herald um this is good to see at least in mainstream media um, uh, it's referring to the nine schools at risk of violent extremist influences in New South Wales and this uh, writer of this article is saying that we need to get some sort of comparative religious education happening in schools as a means of combating that unfortunately and that's something you've been calling for for the entire length of this podcast. Mm. Unfortunately, this guy mm. says that uh, trained and screened representatives from a range of faiths could be involved in teaching comparative religion. And I'm saying absolutely not, because <laughs> as soon as they get in the door, they're just going to proselytise. They're going to forget, exactly. They're going to forget the, that they're there to teach and they're going to end up there proselytising. So no, I don't think you want that at all. No. And to be honest... They know nothing of the other religions anyway. Like, how could they do a comparative religion? Like, to assume that... that a, I mean, somebody like Alex, who's done a yeah. Masters of Theology and he's uh, currently in Oxford doing a doctorate, and he's, what do you know about Islam? He goes, really, nothing that I could comment on with any authority at all. Like, and here's a guy who's... Exactly. He's spent a lot of time looking at religion. So the thought that you could just grab an an imam or an Anglican priest or a Buddhist monk, and they'll be good on comparative religion, a very uh, uh, naive view of the world. It's nonsense, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So full marks to Anthony for raising the issue and zero marks for 
one of the proposed solutions. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, the thing is, if, you, if you've got teachers and that sort of stuff that are already in the schools and then you give them the, then you give them the workbook to go through and you can say, this is what you can say about each of the religions. Yes. Then you've, you know, then you've got um, no problems with people arguing that you're cherry picking or anything like that. You can just present it as is. A curriculum that, that gets... A curriculum, that exactly. Gets drawn up centrally and gets followed. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Um, back to Ayan Hersey Ali as part of her visit. Uh, apparently one of her policies is that um, uh, Muslim schools should not be allowed in liberal society. Um, everyone says we allow Christian and Jewish schools, but they are different, she added. So she's for banning Muslim schools, but not necessarily Christian or Jewish schools. Can't agree with yeah, her I there. Found that a little bit, no, I can't agree with her there either. I mean, I found that a little bit ridiculous that she, um, that she said that. Mm. But anyway, she said it and we just got to move on with it. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you're going to ban one, you've got to ban them all. You can't, uh, you've got to be across the board for that. So there's one we disagree with Ayan on. Mm. Scott, uh, article about John Howard, our most destructive prime minister ever. This was a good article. It was very good, wasn't it? It, um, it certainly made me think because I was a card-carrying liberal back then and I thought to myself, Jesus, what have I... What did I help bring about? You know, so, <laughs> mm. so this is uh, this is only a short one from the Canberra Times, but it's a good argument to say that John Howard was our worst prime minister ever because of the policies he implemented, which are still with us. And you know, this is part of the problem: is he he had control during golden years, so he could do get away with stuff. So. Uh, so anyway, and that is the thing. That is the thing I found really ridiculous about him was at the time, at the time when the baby bonus and that sort of stuff was introduced and middle class welfare and all that sort of stuff. I thought to myself at the time, you don't want to do that. You know, they should be keeping some of the money back. Mm. And I didn't really know until years later that the rivers of gold that were flowing into Canberra were coming out of tax out of company tax payments. Mm not anything else. So that was that was really, really ridiculous. As in, that as they in mining allowed that to happen. Mining boom tax oh, yeah. payments, yes. Mining boom mm. mining boom were, that was all company tax payments that were coming into the into the Commonwealth. Mm. Now had I've known that at the time I would have said at the time that they've got to stop this. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. Mm. So uh, so this article says um, well we can blame him for sending Australian forces to the second Iraq war. Um, based on a falsity. In terms of housing affordability, it was Howard who introduced the capital gains tax concession and who bolstered the first home buyer's grant. Uh, he introduced an over-60 superannuation tax holiday. He introduced the family payments to middle-income households, um, that middle-income sort of middle-class welfare you were talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. So in short, he squandered the mining boom on buying votes. Uh, in education, he dramatically increased federal funding to private schools and starved public schools. And that's been really hard to unwind. And he corroded Medicare by misdirecting money into tax deductions for inefficient private health insurance. And again, that's been hard to can unwind. 
and um, the Republic uh, referendum, he torpedoed any chance of success there. He changed the definition of marriage. Uh, so the only things we can give him some lasting credit for on the positive side would be gun control and the GST. So people think fondly of John Howard, but he was lucky, as you said, with the mining boom, and he just instituted a lot of really damaging things and stuff like the goddamn school chaplains are still here because of him. Yeah, exactly. And that is the thing that I find really distressing about this whole bloody thing was that a lot of the problems you and I have been banging on about over the last well, 18 months or 12 months or however long we've been doing this, mm. they'd had their genesis in Howard's government. Yes, yes. Or if they'd you know. started elsewhere, he really cranked up um, and uh, accelerated whatever minor programs might have been in place before he arrived. Mm. Mm. Scott, it's not looking good for men. No. <laughs> I really like this article. This, dear listener, is from the New York Times. The increasing significance of the decline of men. So, at one end of the scale, men continue to dominate. Uh, Just last year, 95% of Fortune 500 CEOs were male. Um, So, you know, and you look around the world and you think, well, men have got it made because they seem to have all the advantages. But this article um, provides some reasons why that's not going to continue down the track. Um, A a study by Dallas Federal Reserve, published in 2014, um, when a lot of middle skill jobs had been lost in the US labour market. Uh, So middle skill jobs lost. The majority of women who had those jobs uh, managed to upgrade their skills and find better paying jobs. So the majority of women upgraded and got a better paying job. By comparison, more than half of the men who lost middle school jobs had to settle for lower paying occupations. So they couldn't upgrade and get a better paying job. Um, what they're finding is um, men whose childhood years were marked by family disruption seemed to fare the worst. So in a different paper, they measured academic and economic outcomes for brothers and sisters in Florida in the decade between 1992 and 2002. And uh, for boys and girls raised in two-parent households, there were only modest differences between the sexes in terms of success at school. The boys tended to earn a bit more than the sisters in early adulthood. So... You've got a brother and sister, pretty much similar outcomes if they're in a two-parent household. But in a single-parent household, what they found was boys performed significantly less well than their sisters in school and their employment rate as young adults was lower relative to their sisters. So in a single-parent family, boys really suffer compared to girls who more or less achieve the same as if it had been a two-parent family. Um, Mm. uh, employment rates of young women are nearly invariant meaning don't change uh, in relation to family marital status while the employment rates of young adult men from non-married families are 8 to 10 percentage points below those from married families at all income levels 
It's amazing, Scott, that if you'd come from a boy from a single parent will be nine percentage points below a boy from a, a stable home. Girls, mm. no change. Very interesting. Mm. Um, it is very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Uh, it becomes even more interesting when you look at the rates of uh, white non-marital births, okay? So white boys, um, parents not married, presumably single. Um, In 1965, only 3.4% of whites were born in a non-marital situation. By 2014, that was 35.7%. So there's a huge number of... A uh, huge increase in the number of white boys in single families. And also the divorce rate has increased a lot as well. So not only are their mothers not married in the beginning, but they're also becoming divorced along the way. So um, it makes the point that women have strong mate preferences such that they do not want to mate or marry men who are less educated, less intelligent and less successful than they are. This creates a surplus of men at the low end who are not going to get married. Millions of these less well-educated men are not going to get the benefits of marriage because married men live longer, less likely to become alcoholic, take drugs, commit suicide, etc. Um, Men are really going to have to change their act or have big problems. I think of big guys from the cave days, guys who were good at lifting stuff and hunting and the things that we got genetically selected out for. During the Industrial Revolution, that wasn't so bad, but it's not going to be there anymore. So high-paying, difficult-to-automate jobs increasingly require social skills. Nearly all job growth since 1980 has been in occupations that are relatively social skill intensive. Um, Jobs that require high levels of analytical and mathematical reasoning but low levels of social interaction have fared especially poorly. And women, of course, score consistently higher on emotional and social intelligence. So they're going to score the jobs that are being created in the future. Scott, the guys are getting whacked on all sides here. So um, for starters, if um, if they're part of a single parent family, they're going to perform worse at school and in jobs. And... There's more single-parent families and women don't want guys who aren't at least as well-educated or as intelligent as they are or as successful as they are. And the new jobs that are being created in the new economy, Scott, are ones that require social intelligence and they're going to be more suited to women than they are to men. So while guys have got the advantage at the moment, all of these factors are adding up to a grim future for blokes. It does look that way, doesn't it? So. <laughs> it does. God, Scott, so, so you and I had better you, you and I had better get out of the workforce before too long. <laughs> so many things that we look at, Scott, are thinking, oh, look, it doesn't matter to you and me because we're old. You know, we're that old now. We'll be, you know, we'll be gone and out of the by the time these issues really become important. But what's the world going to be like in thirty or forty years? So yeah, it's going to be. It's going to be tough for guys. So, when you know, it in the cultural way, yes. identity 
argument when, you know, you're a privileged white male in a position of power. Well, the counter-argument to that is, well, actually, the way things are going, um, it's not actually privileged to, to be male and um, not actually suited to the jobs that are coming onto the market and really suffer from single-parent family situations. So, mm. so well, boo-hoo-hoo, you know, I'm lacking privilege as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is amazing, isn't it? Mm. Article here, Scott. Uh, adoption by same-sex couple opposed because of birth parents' Catholic faith. Yeah, and I found that ridiculous mm. because when you go down to, into it further, um, the girl was taken from her birth mother at four days old due to the mother's long history of drug use and conviction for the manslaughter of her infant son seven years earlier. Mm. Um, I really would have thought that that alone would be enough to extinguish any hope they had of appealing. Mm. But then to call back, fall back on their Catholic faith, yes. that was even more ridiculous, you know. Yes. You know, being a Catholic didn't stop you from killing your seven-month-old boy, mm. you know. So they found it's out... So, so the So the mother and... The biological mother and father uh, wanted the child raised as a Catholic, and the lesbian couple who were adopting said... Well, we can't do that because the Catholic faith doesn't like lesbians. So it's not as if we could give this kid a proper Catholic faith upbringing. Like, don't be, we can't do that. And um, so it all went off to court. And uh, the New South Wales Supreme Court decided that the interests of the child outweighed the interests of the parents in having the child or the biological parents in having the child raised a Catholic. At last, a common sense decision, Scott. Yeah, it is, it is common sense. It, it was, you know, I found it ridiculous when I was reading this article. I thought to myself, you know, what drugs are these people on that they would still think that you know their catholicism would outlay would would outdo their previous bad behavior mm. you know it really was and, if, and then to say that you know to to make out that you've got to be catholic it, it's really ridiculous mm. i mean that child is going to grow up in a loving household and that sort of stuff mm. and by the time she's 16 or 17 and she's got the opportunity to meet the parents you know, she might just say, oh, I don't need to, you know. The child can make up her own mind when she becomes of age, old enough to work out whether the Catholic faith's the right one for her. Mm. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Scott, this Pope, uh, speaking of Catholics, uh, <laughs> he's got a thing about Satan. He's he's really got a thing about Satan, this, this particular he Pope. He does, yes. Yeah. So he... Yeah. He's in the news for advising confessors to refer to an exorcist to better address parishioners who have real spiritual disorders with supernatural origins. Um, Pope Francis has advised priests who hear troubled confessions from parishioners to not hesitate to call on the services of an exorcist. In such circumstances, the confessor, quote, must not hesitate to refer to exorcists, dot, 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 
chosen with great care and prudence, end quote. I mean, that is, that's good advice, Scott. I mean, if you are going to get an exorcist, I, I agree. <laughs> But you want to get the right exorcist. Choose you know, your, you want to get, you your, want to get you, your exorcist really well. Choose your if exorcist. they get it wrong. That's right. Choose your exorcist with great care and prudence. There's there's nothing worse than shoddy exorcist choosing, and it goes on a lot. So it's it's worth... It does go on a lot, It's worth yeah. The po- yeah. making the point that great care and prudence is required, and people are just not taking enough care when choosing their exorcist. Hmm. Hmm. It is not the first time that the Pope has talked about exercising demons. Uh, He generally refers more frequently than his predecessors to the devil, characterising him as a physical presence in the world. And Vatican universities also regularly hold training courses for would-be exorcists, despite the practice being frowned upon by some church intellectuals. There you go. That's what the Catholic Church is currently up to. Mm. Scott, if we thought things were bad in Australia, the Section 18C and the recent Aon Hersey Alley fiasco, Canada is just going bonkers. The House of Commons passed M103, a non-binding motion condemning Islam... Islamophobia and religious discrimination. They've passed a motion. It's non-binding, but it calls on the government to do three things. Condemn Islamophobia and all forms of systemic racism and religious discrimination. Two, quell the increasing public climate of hate and fear. Three, blah, blah, blah. One guy tried to have it amended to remove the word Islamophobia and just have condemn all forms of systemic racism, religious intolerance and discrimination of Muslims, Jews, Christians, Sikhs, some... Hindus and other religious communities. And that was and that rejected. Would have been something you could have Yeah, but that's something you could have got on board with. Yeah, but no, the specific reference to Islamophobia uh had to stay. Yeah. Oh, they're in trouble in Canada. They've got Justin Trudeau and um and they've got motions See, like that. I always thought Justin Trudeau was quite a sensible leader. No. But apparently not. No, he's terrible. He's a he's a boy in a man's job, and um, he's simply got the job because he is the son of a former Prime Minister, and he's got a very cute face and good hair. Scott is probably, <laughs> probably what's happened here. Scott, oh, yeah. we've got lots left, but... Um, my wife's knocking on the door. She's threatening me and saying, you're going over time. And um, <laughs> So, Scott, I think we'll, we'll... hold them over for next week. Hold it over for next week. Um, thank you, dear listener, for listening to, listening to us rant and rave for another week. And uh, Thank you very much for tuning in. Yes, and we'll be back next week. We'll talk to you then. Cheers, thanks. Bye now. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, 
heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.